HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Where it began I can't begin to knowing But then I know it's growing strong Wasn't the spring And spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along Happy Super Bowl Sunday and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, My name is Ann Saxelby. I'm your host. Our show today has been produced by uh, Jack Inslee, engineered by Nat Wiener, and sponsored by Wisconsin Cheese Originals. Nobody knows cheese like Wisconsin. Um, So on this most American of holidays, uh, we thought that it would be appropriate on Cutting the Curd to talk a little bit about American cheese. And I don't mean the craft singles kind. Uh, I mean this kind of burgeoning movement of wonderful artisan cheeses that has really been sort of in the works for the past, uh, you know, 15, 20 years. And um, here to talk with us about this cheese revolution uh, is Leah Mayer, who is a very good friend of mine and co-host for today's show. And Steve Jenkins, who's been so kind as to agree to do another show with me on Cutting the Curd. Are you there, Steve? Yes, of course. All right. Chiming in from the Upper West Side. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for hanging out for breakfast earlier. It was great to see you. Same here, Q. Um, so, you, you, know, you wrote your book back in 1996. You first published The Cheese Primer. Is that correct? Yeah, heck, heck, I restarted it 10 years before that. It just got published in 96. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a pretty extensive uh, tome, you know. Uh, let's see, over 500 pages in total. Um, and so, I don't know, what I, I wanted to ask you, what was the American cheesescape like when you first wrote your book as compared with what it's like today? When I started it in 86, I already felt like we were way miles along the trail because it was only like in 7980 that my first serious artisan came by. That was that was my friend Ian from up in Interlake in New York with Goat Folks. He was this wonderful, wonderful, accomplished, well-traveled hippie who made great <laughs> fresh goat cheese and but by 86, you know, 6 7 years later, there are fully uh, uh, two dozen American artisans that were making cheese, and I made sure that 
that my counters had all of them. The only other one back in seventy nine eighty that that meant anything besides the Grafton Cheddar was was the Crowley Cheddar, which really wasn't a Cheddar and it really wasn't a Colby. So that's that's really only three. It was a Cholby. Jesus, I didn't have the Vela Jack yet then, but Vela Jack was being made out in out in Sonoma. That fabulous dry Jack. And maybe a couple of others if I thought about it, but that was really it in seventy nine eighty. But by eighty six, heck, there was a whole bunch of folks that were making stuff. But here it is, fourteen and twenty four years later, and now you know we we're we're as as far along as 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 anybody in Europe. I mean, we don't have as many as Jesus as France or Italy, but we we certainly rival Switzerland and and Belgium and and the UK and and. And even Spain and Portugal, and the width and breadth of, of the cheeses available. And you, and, and you at Fairway were one of the first people to really support that because you know you were the expert. You well, traveled yeah, I mean, to all these no places, and I mean that's no big deal because we were just really the only ones that cared about it in those days. But but yeah, we I made sure that we were we were working with everybody that that wanted to to parcel post cheese to New York. Because I mean, <laughs> the best I, way to ship cheese, as we all know. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, distributors just tack on more money to the to the retail price. So yeah, I'm real proud of the fact that that Fairway and and I were were first to do it. But now there's lots of folks that are that are doing a heck of a better job even than we are. Like Ann Saxelby. Oh come on, <laughs> no. But so then we were talking at breakfast this morning about how it's gone from that you know, back in uh, the mid to late 80s, early 90s, to the point where now we can't even keep track of everything that's going on. There's you, like... and I were, you and I were talking this morning and trying to trying to pinpoint somebody that, that uh, we were, that just to add to the pantheon of all this, the, the farms and farmers and cheesemakers that we carry. You and I even, even get baffled sometimes trying to keep up, right? Absolutely. No, I, ha- I have seen your moments way before my, uh, <laughs> my time. <laughs> Well, what's neat, I think, is that, that you know, since I'm so old, so many of these cheesemakers will call me and go, well, we've got all this great milk, and we've really been working hard at learning how to make cheese. What kind of cheese shall we make? And what do I you get say to, go, to that? That's such an interesting question. You know, I get to go, well, why don't you make something where you're washing the rind and you come up with something gushy and really strong and smelly? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and they do, you know, and <laughs> that's the fun part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I'm just looking back in, in your book um, and seeing some of these American cheesemakers that were featured back in the day. And a lot of them don't exist anymore. And a lot of them do, but they're in a different incarnation. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you think about that? What, I, I wanted to, you know, it's funny, Leah, my co-host, and I were sitting inside chatting. And one of yeah. the questions that I had written for you was... You know, it's it's kind of like the cheese world mirrors the art world in so many ways, or the mm-hmm. entertainment world, or the performance world. There are certain things that really have staying power, and certain things that really stick after generations mm-hmm. and you know, and years. Um, what are some of the cheesemakers that you've seen in your career that you think have that kind of staying power? It's a good power? analogy. It's a good analogy. An accomplished artist that has a that has a body of work uh, often has has uh, people that. That either admired or or worked for or worked with or studied under that particular artist, and and uh, they begin to produce an idiom similar to their progenitor, to their to the person they so admired. And that's certainly the way it is in the artisanal cheese world or any other artisanal uh, uh, 
industry. Almost like um, an apprenticeship or a journeyman sure. or something Sure. Like I mean, that. Westfield Farm was Letty Kilmoyer and her husband, Bob, and they've turned the farm over to some other folks who are still making the, 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 the blue goats that they made that are blue on the outside. Totally uh, unique. Yeah, yeah, totally unique, and they've they've carried that on. And that then that young lady that took over from Audrey Belchev in Elkton, Alabama, way up in the north end of Alabama, she's continuing to make that great goat milk fromage blanc and and the fresh goat cheeses that that uh, Liz was making. She and her husband, and uh, oh my goodness, the Tarantes from Vermont, those that young couple came to me and said, well, you know, what What should we make? we got all this great Jersey milk. And I said, well, none of the Savoie cheeses of, of France are being, are being recreated in this, in this country. And they offer the most enjoyment, in my opinion. And, and I think that somebody in this country should be making mountain cheeses other than, other than that uh, guy, Jekyll, out, at, uh, out in West. So I think, I think you ought to think of, in terms of an abondance, uh, Tom Dabondance or a Beaufort, or think in terms of of, uh, of um, uh, Tom de Savoie, and that's that's the direction you should go. And by God, they went to Savoie and traipsed up one hill and down the other, and visited cheesemakers, and came back to Vermont and began to make a, uh, the self same mountain cheese that's called Tarantes, and they've won every award now. And indeed. They have these other folks that worked with them that are making a very similar mountain cheese. So it's become, it's become a Vermont idiom. This particular mountain cheese, and heretofore was not made anything like it in Vermont. Vermont is all about cheddars and fresh goat cheeses. But now you got you got people making Pyrenees sheep's cheeses in Vermont as well as raw cow's milk mountain cheeses, and that that, that just shows you how far along we are in this country that that we've got. Cheeses that rival the best of Savoie, you know, and Savoie is arguably the the, the most prolific and, and significant region in the whole world for great, great cheese. So, yeah, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I remember specifically reading a little piece in your book about Telegio and, and mm-hmm. artisan Telegio and how, you mm-hmm. know, if you're really lucky, you could go up into the mountains and find, you know, the real deal. This, the real deal. Now, what do you think about European cheese versus American cheese in stores right now being the real deal? What, what, I don't want our listeners to think that anybody in this country is, is being a copycat because that's just crazy. I mean, you could, you could denigrate American wines and American beers the same way you could, you could scoff at American cheeses as just being, as just being a, a, a mock-ups of, of the uh, European original. Well, guess what? There's only so many recipes in this world to make wine and to make cheese and to make bread and to make beer. So, of course, you're going to ape some other style and some other recipe. But that doesn't mean that you're a copycat. That means that you're bringing milk along to be as good as milk could possibly be. doesn't mean that you're copying anything. You know, I don't, I don't want our listeners to think that, that anybody in this country who's winning the, uh, the prizes internationally now is, is derivative, is, is, is making a cheese that's a derivative of the original. You know, and I'm, I'm kind of at fault, too, because I, I criticize New Zealand and Australia. Their cheeses are so utterly derivative of the uh, European originals that I, I really don't have that much I don't have any respect for them because they're just <laughs> they're just flat out knockoffs of Steve. Of, you're going to alienate all of our listeners in New Zealand. No, we're not. No, I'm we, just kidding. I, I know in my heart that I, I think it's paradise on earth. It's the greatest place in the world, <laughs> and certainly uh, numerous places in Australia, paradise on earth, the greatest place in the world. But when it comes to cheese making, 
they are not allowed to fool with raw milk yeah. in New Zealand or yeah, in Australia true. under any true. circumstances. And, and, and I don't think that you start out with, with something that's, that's dead and come up with something that's alive. I'm not saying there aren't some decent cheeses that are made from pasteurized milk, but, but I don't believe that you should start with a substance that is not as good as it can be in order and trying to make it into something that's magical. And in Australia and New Zealand, they don't, they don't use milk that's raw. They use milk that's been heated to kill all the bacteria in it, which are flavor molecules. And you and I know that that's not a good way to start out if you're going to be a cheesemaker. So that's why, that's why I said that. And I, I don't mean to, to, to alienate any listeners by any means. I just want you to know the truth. Yeah. I've been, I, you know, I've been doing this for 37 years, and, you're and like I've learned the, a few things. And if I'm opinionated, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Hey, so be it. I'd rather have an opinionated person than someone that's just like, doop, doop, going along with the, going along not with the status you quo. And you and yeah. I are not that way. It's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Well, I actually, my question, I guess, has another facet then, because I was actually thinking that maybe in some ways these American farmstead or artisan or sustainably produced, whatever you want to call them, Mm -hmm. cheeses, can be in some ways more authentic now than what we're seeing shipped over from Europe in terms of how they're made and the handmade touch and all that kind of stuff. What what do you think about that? When you mentioned Taleggio, that, that was a perfect point for us to make is that its, it's uh, American counterpart is called Grayson from down there in Virginia. Yes, sir. And this Grayson, this stuff is, is the same shape and same recipe as Taleggio, but it, it takes on an entire different series of, of zetses, of things that, that make me excited. Zetses? Much more so than any Taleggio that I can get my hands on. And this Grayson is like a cross between Mountain Taleggio, that is Farm Taleggio, the, the farm that makes three or four forms of a four-pound, two-kilo Taleggio a day, you know, and uh, contrasted with Mahon, the great cheese from Menorca, that is another cow's milk cheese mm-hmm. and oddly the same shape as Taleggio. It's square and thick. But this Grayson is like a cross between Mahon from Menorca and Taleggio from northern Lombardia, or at least the great Taleggio that we can't really get our hands on anymore unless we're in Italy. So, uh, so I'd say that's a perfect example. The American one has sort of outraced in terms of, of memorability and impact and, and primitiveness, and I consider rusticity and primitiveness to be cardinal virtues in any cheese. The Grayson is a winner over the two greats, one of Spain and one of northern Italy, Taleggio and and Mahon. Absolutely. Well, listen, we have to take a a quick break, but when we come back, I want to ask you some questions about um, the American palate and how that has kind of maybe evolved over the course of your career as well. So we're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio. I would have given you all of my heart But there's someone who's torn it apart And she's taken almost all that I've got But if you want, I'll try to love again Maybe I'll try to love again, but I know Cut is the deepest Baby, I know The first cut is the deepest Cause when it comes to be 
Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. My name is Ann Saxelby. My host, or my host, my guest <laughs> today is Steve Jenkins. And my co-host who's sitting next to me is Leah Mayer. Uh, Leah, I just wanted to ask you a quick question before we get back into this uh, discussion of, you know, palate and everything. What is your favorite American cheese been? I know you've tried a bunch over the last, uh, you know, couple months. Do you have one that stands out in your mind? I've definitely been enjoying the grace and, and all of the Jasper Hill stuff that you've been giving me. Jasper Hill. Yeah, they it's are just pretty good. They're awesome too. <laughs> cool. Um, well, so Steve, what do you think? I mean, we've we've gone from you know, uh, I, I know that when I was little, my um, you know two cheeses that I was most familiar with was Kraft Parmesan in a can, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Kraft Singles in a square. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you think we have you know how how I don't know has have people's Tastes change dramatically, in your opinion, over the last uh, 15, 20 years? I just got back from a few days in my hometown, Columbia, Missouri, and I hadn't been there for 15 years, and then I was only there overnight on book tour, and then I hadn't been there for another 10. So, you know, the place I spent the first 23 years of my life, and all my best pals' early days are there. I hadn't been back there in 100 years, and I go back, and I, I had shipped out from from Jimmy Coogan, the master cheesemonger at Ideal Cheese. He shipped me out four kilos of what he thought was the best thing he had that day. One was that buffalo milk quadretto from Lombardia, from the lowlands of Lombardia, and he sent out a kilo and a half of Roncal, the great raw sheep's milk cheese from Navarra, the first D.O. in Spain. Mm. And he sent... He sent uh, a couple of other just magnificent things. One of them was a goat cheese from Leon called Leonita, this extraordinary goat's milk cheese, in a, sort of in a French idiom, but totally, totally Spanishized. And, uh, and uh, the fourth one, I can't remember what the hell it was. But here's it was so all good my you ate buds. it all and the label here's was Here's all my old buds out there yeah. um, who, who haven't been around like, like we have, like we hipster New Yorkers, they just, they, you know, they go to Colorado to ski and they go to Hawaii, you know, and they go Canada or Mexico. They don't get to Europe very much. They're not very sophisticated when it comes to food, the way, the way we're just, you know, fanatical about, about three meal every three, every meal every day. Planning out like three days in advance. Exactly. And here, here they were confronted with, with these four magnificent cheeses. Uh-huh. And I was able to come up with some pretty good bread. I don't know how I did because they don't understand bread out there either. <laughs> or uh, bagels, they understand for that matter. Really is, oh, my God. All they understand out there really is liquor and drugs. <laughs> but anyway, these folks were exultant over these four really rustic, primitive cheeses. And I could see their eyes light up. They, they, they'd really never tasted any cheeses like that in their lives. Yeah. And it was the, it was really, they, they were more happy that those cheeses were there than, than that I was there. <laughs> and that, that, that showed me how fertile the American palate is, uh, on both ways. If Almost they've not tasted these things, or if they have done some traveling and tasted these things, Americans are very, very sophisticated about about flavors and about about the real deal and about how bored they are with the fake deal. Right. So I would say to you that over the last 20, 25 years, whether they've traveled or not, 
Americans have gotten very sophisticated as regards their palates and as regards what they'll pay attention to and what they won't pay attention to. Back back 25 years ago when I was a counterman, I used to have to grab people by the throat to get their attention to taste something. And, do, and is that, to, is that still legal? Can I do? Can, is that still legal? Can I do that at the Essex Market? Can I you, grab people? You don't leave fingerprints. You know, if you leave bruise marks <laughs> on their throats, it could be problems. So grab them gently. Okay. But I mean, I, it, it's just amazing how hard I had to work to get people to pay any attention. And when that idiot book of mine won the won the the James Beard Award at at the big fancy. Uh, book awards thing at the Marriott, and I had to wear tux, and all those chefs, all those fancy schmancy chefs were there and picking up their awards and all. And, and here's this book on cheese that wins the Grand James Beard Award, and I had to go up and take the award like some idiot, you know, Grammy Award winning thing. And I said to all this huge, vast audience, I said, it's about time all you chefs gave cheese some attention. It took this book for you people to pay some attention to cheese, you know, shame on you. <laughs> and then, of course, they all thought, what a jerk. But I said exactly what I wanted to say. Why did it take so long for people to pay any attention to cheese? Well, and indeed, yeah. they sure as have, hell have now, and, and, and they, they understand how wonderful and what a joy a great cheese can bring to you. Absolutely. Well, when you taste that first artisan-made cheese like that, I remember for me it was when I was in Italy. I went to uh, Florence to visit a buddy of mine who was studying abroad there when I was in college, and yeah. um, I had a pecorino, you know, and yeah. I was like, "What is this mystical substance called pecorino?" Oh, you know, I, I went back to the to to you know New York, and somebody turned me on to Murray's and some other stores, and all of a sudden I was I was totally hooked. So, wow. yeah, it's uh, it's when you taste the real thing, you definitely remember. But until you have like that experience, how the hell would anyone be expected yeah, to know precisely. about it? But you know, for me, what we haven't touched on is 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 the geography of the thing, and while while it's 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 I, I, I could spend an hour. You and I could talk about the the regionality of the great European cheeses, and 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 fully half the fun is is understanding where in the hell they came came from. It's the same way with the American stuff. If you if you appreciate going up into the the northeast kingdom of of Vermont and and that gorgeous, fabulous, primitive area. That's the whole fun of the whole thing is to go up there and, and be there and, and buy the cheese on site and, yeah. and appreciate it. And that, that way it never leaves you. And it becomes a part of your DNA. It really ingrains itself into your very being. And not just north part of Vermont, but my gosh, all these up Tennessee and Kentucky and, and all these great little all hollows. throughout the south and, and it's very yeah, exciting. California. Virginia, there's places to explore that's just, it's so much fun. You don't always have to spend a bunch of money and go to Europe. You can do it in your own country. Yeah, Oregon, and- there's places in Oregon that you never dreamed were so beautiful. And the greatest cheeses in the country arguably are coming out of Oregon right now. Wow. You know? Wow. I don't have much West Coast stuff in my store. I've got to like, you know, I've got to beef up on my uh, West Coast cheese. But I guess you, the American Cheese Society is going to be in uh, in Seattle this summer. Are yeah. you going to come? Oh, sure. Heck yeah. Awesome. Oh, yeah. You got to be there. Got to be there. Um, so, yeah, you, you mentioned an interesting point about, you know, people putting a name and a, well, sort of a, a face to their, to the people who make their food. And I feel like, 
you know, going up to visit a farm or even if it's just meeting a farmer at the green market um, is a great way to do that. And I feel like that's probably helped American cheese a lot, too, huh? Just having the presence of farmers at the green market who can talk about how it's made. Well, yeah, we can get our listeners to get off their duffs and go to the green market. I mean, every time I go to a green market and I come back, I feel enriched. I feel noble. I feel like I got over because it, it, they should be charging admission. And I feel closer to the <laughs> things that I'm going to serve, to the people I love to be with. It is a fabulous experience to go to those idiot green markets. You know, you read about green market this and green market that, yeah, big deal. But once you're there, and you and I have been face-to-face at numerous green markets, it is such a charge because of what's happening there. I mean, it could be 200 years ago. It's like a time machine because it's, it's the person that made the stuff with his own or her own hands confronting somebody that wants to be delighted and is going to fork over some lucre in order to walk away with some of whatever it is, whether it's you know, maple syrup or, or some hand-knitted sheep uh, wool things or some great cheese from someplace. I mean, what what a joy. And that's the whole thing that I fell in love with in Europe is, is going to the markets. They certainly don't call them green markets. They just call them the marché. Right. And they crop up in, the, in whatever little village there is of any size on very specific days. And that's the days that people go to market. And it's the most wonderful thing in the whole world about life is going to the market and, and, and getting the work clothes that you have to wear to do your job and going to get your, your few bottles of wine from the winemaker, going to buy your cheeses, buying the flowers that show up in the marketplace. And that's what the green market experience is all about. I should shut up because I'm Fairway Market and I don't want you going to the green market. I want you coming to Fairway Market because we're open every bloody day and the green market's open like once a week. But you know, it's it's all about coming face-to-face with the people that made your food. Yeah, and when, you know, people can't get out to the green market or, you know, they can't drive out to the farm, they trust people like you to tell them, you know, that story. And that's a really important, you know, I mean, how many people in a supermarket are you going to be able to have a dialogue with or be able to josh with or... Or on the other side, the, the grocer. How, ma- how, how many grocers are there that will cajole people coming through the supermarket to buy this or to buy that the way we do it Fairway? You know, it's all about cutting out all of that, that, that hideous supermarket mentality of, of stuff on a shelf and nobody there to talk about it and nobody there that was thrilled by it ever and nobody that had anything to do with pioneering it and nobody there that wants to talk about how to prepare it. And it's the same thing with, with cheeses. You, you've got to, to understand the American stuff now because it, it, it's so many people that are, are raising their kids to, to take over what it is they're doing now so that their lives are interesting. And, and you've got to support that. If you've got a single, single thread of heart in your body, you've got to begin to support these people that are making great American cheeses. Well, Canadian too. In Canadian too, absolutely. Well, hey Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to come to chat with us again this afternoon. Um, it was great to see you for breakfast. And over nothing that. I would rather do than, than talk to your listeners and talk to you. Well, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we'll get you out here again soon for another episode of Cutting the Curve. I'm waiting to hear from you. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks, Steve. We'll be back in a minute. Where it began 
I can't begin to know it, but then I know it's growing strong. Wasn't the spring, and spring became the summer. Who'd have believed you'd come along? Hands touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. My name is Ann Saxelby. I'm your host. I'm here today with my co-host, Leah Mayer. And for the last segment of our show, we are going to be chatting with Robert Aguilera, who is a cheese man extraordinaire and who is going to be on Cutting the Curd from time to time to tell us what is going on out there in the world of cheese beyond what you know I get to see and hear and read about. Because as Steve and I were talking about, it is so vast, and there's just so much going on that uh, um, Robert kind of has his, his finger on the pulse. So thanks for joining us today, Robert. Are you there? I sure am. Thank you, Ann. Awesome. Great to be on. Yeah, th- great to hear your voice. Yeah. Um, so we were talking with Steve, uh, you know, about American cheese and kind of this, yeah. the state of American cheese and how it's changed over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, and... I know you started your career as a cheesemonger at uh, Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge, isn't that right? That's correct, yep. And what are your thoughts as a, as a cheese man? Um, what have you seen happen with American cheese in the last 10, 15 years? In the last, for me, I guess for the last 10 years that I've been involved with cheese, I've definitely seen it explode in number, in the variety, and also in, in the passion for the folks who are looking for it. Um, as I worked at Formaggio Kitchen, which predominantly was and kind of still is, very focused on the European imports, you had that small enclave of people who would come in asking, what do you have locally? It was very, very small. And you many times had to push it on folks just to get it out there, But just like Steve was saying. But <laughs> it's grown over time, and to the point that people follow more American cheeses at specialty cheese shops than they did 10 years ago. So there are people who have their eye on that. They do want to support local. They want to support those folks who are trying to, to create great cheeses and often do and don't get recognition for it from a large-scale audience. And they, they, they hold it closer to themselves, the customers. So I've definitely seen the customer base grow to love them and almost expect more. What's new? What's coming up? And for me, it's really exciting to see. And not just the number of cheesemakers, but the quality level has gotten to a point that everybody has gotten to a level that you can count on their cheese being good all the time. And occasionally, great. The ones that are really great, they're the people that have the most amount of following. Those are the farmers who are doing it so right that they could just make cheese with their eyes closed and make it most amazing that no one would ever stray from it ever again and never go back to European cheeses. And that's what I'm seeing, more of a, of a fan base for American products. It's a lot like sports. You're finding more people who are rooting <laughs> for the home team now more so than depending on quality coming from across the pond. Interesting. Well, so yeah, that that is fascinating. And I know that Formaggio for, you know, as much as the owner Isan Girdel focused on, you know, sort of finding very special things from Europe, um, you guys were such early supporters of a lot of really 
wonderful, wonderful cheesemakers. The ones that come to mind for me immediately are the people from Monterey Chev and also yes. um, Carolyn Hellman from Hellman Farm who makes yes. amazing, amazing goat cheeses. Um, what, what for you are some of the ones, some of the other cheeses that Formaggio kind of had a hand in, in, in popularizing with your clients in Boston? Well, definitely the products coming out of Vermont, especially with uh, Jasper Hill, with Matteo and Andy's cheeses coming up way back in the early 2000s. Uh-huh. Um, but there have also been a large number of small makers around us locally in Massachusetts and all the way up from, well, down from Rhode Island through Massachusetts and up through Maine that have come to those shops and have really tried to get the opinion of and what should we do and how should we do things differently, who should we talk to. And for me, one of the, the highlights has been uh, a woman named Tricia Smith from Carlisle Farmstead. Um, she makes her cheeses from her goats. It's completely farmstead. She makes it up in Carlisle, Massachusetts, which is close to Concord, so okay. close to the, uh, the uh, ride of Paul Revere, so to speak. Um, it's not too far outside of, of Boston. It's about 25 miles outside. And it's just a wonderful set of bloomy-rinded goat cheeses that occasionally will have a line of ash to them or just always have a little bit of something extra, whether it's a little bit of herb or you name it. Whatever she puts into it, the quality of her milk and the quality of her process creates a product that you can, can, you can count on for just velvety decadence in goat cheese. It's amazing. Now, um, now yeah. when, you were, when you were at Formaggio, were you the, uh, the buyer for these cheeses or... Um... What was, uh, were you the one that was getting in touch with all of these people, or would they kind of come to the store and bring you guys stuff that they were working on? Most of the time, it was folks bringing it to us, and I was the buyer, and then eventually buyer and GM at the same time. Um, and they would come to the store. They would bring their product and say, what do you think? That was always the, the way it, it happened for the first couple of years, and then it got to the point where we wanted to find out what else is out there. So then we started asking and calling. And the great thing about Formaggio Kitchen and you know, bringing all the, or the farmers coming to us was also what it did to inspire the, the people who work there. One in which was really inspired was Michael Lee, who is now Twig Farm, who oh. worked at our South End store um, in Boston itself uh, for a couple of years. And it was wonderful working with him and then seeing him decide to take that leap and just hit it, hit the ground running with most amazing Twig tomes, wash rind Twig. I mean, you name it. His stuff is by far absolute best quality. It's true. I think Michael is one of my absolute favorite cheesemakers, and he has that artist's sensibility for just dealing with, you know, the milk and the curd uh, and the tactile nature of cheesemaking, as well as understanding his land and and all of the different implications that seasonality and that, you know, um, all all of the aspects of farming and cheesemaking kind of kind of weave together. Um, it's just it's pretty incredible. Yeah, Michael is is one of the rare cheesemakers who handles every single aspect of farmstead cheesemaking and also makes a living at it at the same time that I've seen. He does it better than anybody I've ever seen with such calm and grace and just understanding here's what happens. Here's what we do next. Here's a mistake. You fix it this way. It's very, very natural. And he's very clean. That's one of the key things about what he does. It's just so amazing. It's rustic in its final product, all the cheeses that he makes. But his process is always very consistent and clean. And that's what makes it so great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like what you touched on about like sort of the, the cheesemakers bringing cheese to the store, the dialogue between 
cheesemaker and buyer the and, and retailer, um, the dialogue between then the retailer and the customer right. and kind of the inspiration that, you know, results all around. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing because I don't know. I know that in Europe that obviously exists between, um, you know, cheese shops and the people that they buy their cheese from or affineurs and the um, farms that they work with. But I feel like that in America that, you know, our cheese industry is at such a younger stage that that dialogue is a little bit more lively and a little bit more um, kind of crucial to the development of, of the product. Nothing's as, as settled as it is over there. Correct. And that's actually the best part about the American artisan cheese world that we have going on. Nothing is set in stone. Everything is changing and changing for the better. Um, one thing that I do when I get to travel around is to see all these cheesemakers and, and get to listen to their hopes and their dreams, what they want to do, what they want to make next, what they want to attempt to do with just the way that they, they process what they already make so that they can make it more consistent and better and they can believe in the fact that it's going to eventually make them more than just a living. And there's something about just the fact that the hard work that they're creating is creating products that are being eaten but now are being hailed for for just their excellence and what else can be done with them, what else you can pair with them. And when I was working as a monger and working, you know, selling cheese to, to customers every day, I felt it was my responsibility to in, introduce these American products to customers because there's a heart and soul behind it that every single day is waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning and not going to sleep until midnight. Yeah. So and there's something that needs everybody needs to know what's being made in their backyard. That's the other thing about American cheeses. I still think the American customer doesn't know, and there still needs to be more awareness brought to all those makers who just might be, you know, no more than two or three miles down the road. You've got to be able to wake up and see that there's great product that not only tastes good, but actually might be better for you than anything else you're going to put into your body today. And supporting, um, you know, uh, supporting your local economy, which, you know, exactly. you can put your dollars in a lot of different places to get, you know, gastronomic uh, pleasure, but so much the better if it's, you know, someone who's operating a farm just 20 miles oh from where God. you live. One place, I've really got to tell you about this one place down in uh, Foxborough, Massachusetts. Okay. It's south of Boston. Uh -huh. it's, it's the Lawton Family Farm. And there's a woman there uh, by the name of Terry Lawton, who is the daughter of Edward and Nancy Lawton. She's been working on a project to supply raw milk to folks for, for sale from the farm. Okay. And they've since then started, this was about five years ago that she started that milk project. Can, can I interrupt for two oh, seconds please, and just ahead. ask what the raw milk regulations are in Massachusetts? Because I know it's different in every state. It is different in every state. You can buy it from the farm. They're only allowed to sell a certain amount from the farm but you have to go to the farm to buy it. Okay. So you can't find it in any stores. Um, but the one thing that's really amazing about this farm, and it kind of makes sense to today's national holiday being Super Bowl, um, <laughs> you go to this old 1830s built barn. Uh -huh. it's, it could fall apart if you, if you hit it with a truck, but it's really gorgeous in how you can see old architecture. It's, it's amazing. But you walk to, into it, and you see a, a bank of a couple of coolers that have raw milk and also their cheese that they make there. And you see the make room that's been completely revamped to be modern, and it's a, perfect for licensing and, and make, meets all the requirements. They have a window, though, that goes out the back of that barn. So if you're standing at the front of the barn entrance and you're looking through that window in the back with the draining where the cheese make room is, you can see 
um, Gillette Stadium where the New England Patriots play. <laughs> it's really funny. I'm like, wait a minute. And this farm has existed since the 1700s. And, <laughs> and where where is it again? Just it Foxborough, Foxborough, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, but I have to say, the joy of of going down there, which is about a half hour drive from Boston, and picking up raw milk and bringing it home and drinking it every single day. There's nothing that I can compare that to as far as other real food beyond making it myself, beyond making something, a home-cooked meal. Buying that type of product, is it's like getting gold for yeah. the first time and, and, having, and holding this abundance of wealth in your hands. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. And the fact that that's coming about and becoming more available, it's great. Now we need to get it out there. We need people to know about it. We absolutely. And every little thing, every little broadcast like this that we do hopefully will help because people can Definitely. access this on the Heritage Archives. And uh, the more we know about local food, the better. Um, and unfortunately, we've run out of time on today's show, but I would love to have you back next week to talk about more local finds that you have as well as, um, you know, insight that you've got into the into the cheese world. Thank you so much for nope. coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Love it. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. And uh, thank you for tuning in to Cutting the Curd. We'll see you next Sunday. Congratulations, boss, with your solo.